Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 188, Looking Back on the Calm Before the Storm, part one. Thanks to a patron. Thank you to Graham Baker for making a donation. As to everyone else, you know, it's great if you can support the show, if you can. And if not, I just hope you enjoy. And with that, let's get into the recap. Now, this season began where season seven left off in 1886, just after the assassination of Stefan Stambolov, and essentially when Ferdinand had finally obtained official recognition from the great powers and was feeling more secure in his throne. The prince was, at this point, the premier political power in the country, and Bulgaria was finally achieving some level of stability after a very chaotic first few kind of partial independence years. At this point in 1886, Bulgaria is under Prime Minister Konstantin Stoilov, who essentially left foreign policy to Ferdinand while focusing mostly on developing Bulgarian industry through loans and tariffs. Now, while proper factories were still pretty slow to get going, traditional crafts were suffering. Meanwhile, peasant land was being subdivided over and over with each generation, which, along with a slowness to adopt modern farming methods, meant that life was getting harder and harder for Bulgaria's farmers. Now, unfortunately for them, the government was far more interested in spending money on the army, railroads, and industry, so peasants were relatively neglected despite being the overwhelming majority of the country's population. Otherwise, while highway robbers had thankfully declined, Macedonian Chetty roamed around Bulgaria exhorting people for money, bribing people where needed, and generally creating a degree of low-level criminality as they gradually grew in strength. Otherwise, the Stoilov government had fired huge numbers of government bureaucrats and workers, which it connected with the former Stambolov regime, meaning the average competence level in the Bulgarian government declined sharply. This was beginning a new trend where new governments would bring in a bunch of their own people, often regardless of qualifications, to fill all these bureaucratic positions. Now, the problem was that the country you know, didn't have enough qualified people, Although, despite that, there were still many more white-collar professionals who wanted these jobs than there actually were jobs, and so many simply waited for their chance to get a lucrative government job. So, you had the creation of a kind of disaffected group of white-collar professionals who want jobs, as well as a decline in the average competency of those professionals. Also, this encouraged political parties to split and create multiple new political parties because that would create multiple new opportunities for white-collar professionals to hopefully, you know, get themselves on a waiting list for a government job, which all contributed to a less stable political scene. Now, taken together, this less stable political scene with more small parties made it easier for Ferdinand to play those parties against each other and remain the true political power in the country. Now, post-recognition, Ferdinand was traveling all around the continent on a kind of charm tour, but he remained frustrated that he was still technically an Ottoman vassal and so was not seen as the, kind of as on the same level as other European monarchs. 
Now, at this time, the supremacists, you'll recall, one of the two Macedonian revolutionary groups, were resolving some internal issues around a kind of disconnect between its leadership and its actual members. For now, the group had decided to pause violent acts and were more focused on kind of gradually building up resources to take some actions in Macedonia down the line. They were also holding meetings with the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, which I referred to as the MRO, based in Thessaloniki. But the military men in the supremacists doubted the ability of the peasants to lead an uprising, which was something that the more idealistic MRO kind of believed in strongly as a kind of point of ideology, which created a rift between the two organizations, which were gradually becoming bitter rivals. Around the same time, the MRO with the Bulgarian Exarchate Church over the MRO's more socialistic and atheistic views. Uh, if you want to imagine it this way, the MRO was a little bit more left-wing and a little bit more favor of kind of multi-ethnic and uh, multi-linguistic, multi-confessional visions of a future Balkan peninsula, which didn't work so well for the Bulgarian church. Now, many wealthier people in Macedonia proper sided with the church, hurting the MRO. Meanwhile, Ferdinand was told that if he could manage to suppress these Macedonian organizations, the Ottomans would allow the Bulgarian Exarchate Church to increase its influence in Macedonia. But the Stoilov government was dead set against this move, mostly because this was the, the kind of strategy of the uh, Stambulov government, and Stoilov, you know, wanted to do the opposite of everything Stambulov wanted to do. So, even though Ferdinand thought that this was a good move, he wasn't really able to execute it. Still, even the prospect of this deal created strained relations between the Bulgarian government and the Macedonian revolutionary organizations, as well as Bulgaria's kind of lack of follow-through on it created strained relations between Bulgaria and the Ottomans. So, in a way, Bulgaria was getting the worst of all worlds. Now, at this time, which we're now in about the spring of 1896, a revolt in Crete led the Greek government to try to foment revolt in Macedonia to distract the Ottomans, but the Greeks had limited success. Meanwhile, the supremacists in the MRO each held congresses and each decided against leading a kind of uprising at this moment to sort of take advantage of the chaos. The Stoilov government used the lack of their activities in this moment to claim that you know, they were successfully reducing their abilities and that the Ottomans should implement reforms and that if the Ottomans didn't, surely the Macedonian groups would return to violence. But in short, the Ottomans didn't buy it. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the Bulgarians were unable to extract any concessions based on that lack of action. But soon Ferdinand got more involved with the Ottomans and got them to agree to at least some limited reforms in Macedonia. Now, Late 1896 saw a major election victory for that Stoilov government and its conservative party. By early 1897, though, Greece had intervened directly in Crete, leading the great powers to demand a ceasefire and autonomy for the island. But Greece rejected anything less than Crete being fully annexed by the Greeks, and so the Ottomans declared war on Greece. The Ottoman army quickly marched to Athens, and Greece was only saved from total defeat by the intervention of the great powers. As a result of this war, Crete became autonomous, and Greece lost a bit of territory on the mainland, and in general the Greek economy was put under great power supervision, and the Greek state was really humiliated. 
All this showed just how dangerous it was to listen to romantic nationalists over hard diplomatic and military realities, as Greek nationalists had encouraged the state to take these risky moves that led to war, and the war had been a disaster. Bulgaria, for its part, took advantage of the situation by extracting more concessions from the Ottomans and by closing the Macedonian border to get those concessions. Now, in response to this situation, the MRO and the supremacists decided to actually work together, though both were still quite skeptical of the other. Also at this point, Bulgaria's famous writer Aleko Konstantinov was killed in a kind of botched assassination attempt of a local politician. Soon after that, the Ottomans uncovered a huge network of sort of agents in Macedonia, which triggered mass arrests, though they failed to realize that all this was connected with the MRO. Still, even if the Ottomans failed to realize that this was an MRO network they'd just broken up, another incident soon afterwards led them to that conclusion, and they gradually learned just how massive the MRO's network in Macedonia was. Now, unfortunately for the MRO, they were unprepared to sort of fight against the Ottomans at this point, and so these two revelations led their operations in Macedonia to take a major hit. In response, they worked to create smaller and permanent armed units so that next time an incident like this occurred, they could respond militarily very quickly. This year also saw the death of Evlogi Georgiev, the wealthiest Bulgarian, and it was a shock to most that his fortune was given to Ivan Geshov instead of to his family, making Geshov the richest man in Bulgaria and the subject of many lawsuits, and sort of beginning his political career. So we're now in 1898, and by this point, Ferdinand had managed to mend the relationship with his wife as the two welcomed their fourth child. However, she soon died at the age of 29, shortly after that birth. Otherwise, the Stoilov government spent the year attempting to build a relationship with the MRO, but with little success, as the organization still did not trust the Bulgarian government. At the same time, the supremacists became even more dysfunctional, leading the MRO to basically take over that organization in the form of Boris Sarafov. Essentially, he was an MRO guy who took control of the supremacists. So yeah, the two were working together skeptically. Now the MRO has taken the supremacists over. Meanwhile, the Stoilov government was trying to decide what to do about the massive sums of money that the Oriental Railway Company was charging Bulgarians to use its lines. Lines that crossed the Bulgarian country and were vital for the Bulgarian economy. Nationalization and just purchasing the lines weren't options because the company said no, and so Bulgaria started building a parallel line. But, long story short, this was a disaster, and the government ended up in huge amounts of debt and had to sign a humiliating deal with Deutsche Bank, leading to the government needing to increase taxes on peasants. This increased tax triggered violent protests, which were violently suppressed. Ultimately, Stoilov's government resigned in early 1899 after nearly five years as prime minister. The Radoslavovist liberals then took charge under Prime Minister Grekov, but the peasant tax was still there, and this led to the creation of the Agrarian Union, which brought together a variety of kind of smaller local peasant organizations to argue for the peasants in general, but at the moment specifically to really fight this higher peasant tax. But 
It was now time for new elections, and these elections brought a new level of violence alongside actually record turnout. As a result of these elections, the liberals took firm control of Bulgarian politics away from the conservatives, frustrating Ferdinand. Still, the prince saw their rise as a chance to mend relations with Austria-Hungary, which was still angry that Prince Boris had converted to orthodoxy. So again, the conservatives were a bit more pro-Russian, the liberals were a bit more pro-Austria-Hungary. So even if Ferdinand kind of preferred the conservatives, at least the liberal cabinet was an opportunity to kind of play those factions off against one another on the geopolitical stage. Soon, though, this new liberal cabinet fell apart and a new liberal cabinet under Todor Ivanchov took over. Now, this is where the 20th century begins. And in the new year, mass protests over that peasant tax continued, leading to yet more violence. Meanwhile, the supremacists under Boris Sarafov were fixing internal issues, but a split within the organization was also growing over whether or not they should return to violent acts in Macedonia. The supremacists also attempted a kind of closer integration with the MRO, but the MRO rejected this and the two groups kind of split again. Now, around this time, a critic of the MRO living in Bucharest was assassinated, forcing Bulgaria to arrest many senior supremacists to avoid basically war with Romania. Sarafov was among those arrested, enabling his rival faction within the supremacists under Tsonchev to take over. This further kind of severed what remaining ties existed between the supremacists and the MRO because the you know, su- more supremacist-connected guy Sarafov was now out of power. Otherwise, the Ivanchov government was taking more and more flack over the violence in Macedonia, leading to its resignation in late 1900. Ferdinand then put his close ally, General Racho Petrov, in charge as Sofia decided it was time to crack down on both the supremacists and the agrarians. Elections were held in early 1901, resulting in no party gaining a clear majority and the liberals decisively losing theirs. Eventually, a coalition of conservative parties formed a new government under Petko Karavelov. At this moment, Queen Victoria died, and Ferdinand skipped the funeral because he would not have been treated as a full sovereign, again, because Bulgaria was still technically an Ottoman vassal, and yeah, he, he just didn't want to attend the event in that way, and he chose to instead celebrate his son Boris's birthday with Russian officials in Bulgaria, which also was a part of him kind of playing that balancing act between the great powers, you know, being a bit more pro-Russian and a bit less pro-British. But although Bulgaria's relationship with Russia was definitely improving at this moment, Russia still remained staunchly in favor of the status quo in the Balkans, status quo that was stifling Bulgaria's attempts to obtain Macedonia. It was at this moment that the MRO was hit with a bombshell, as nearly 200 of its members were arrested. This allowed Ivan Gervanov, who was the head of this small organization, the Revolutionary Brotherhood, which the MRO had recently taken over, to himself kind of sort of take charge of the MRO. But, you know, the organization was kind of thrown into chaos by this, so it was kind of a de facto control, not a de jure control. As a result of all of this, the MRO was just crippled, and the supremacists, though, for their part, were still deeply divided between that Sonchev and the Sarafa factions, and so 
yeah, the MRO was crippled by these arrests and in total chaos. The supremacists were so deeply divided that they were basically paralyzed and unable to take any real action. But soon, Tsonchev succeeded in taking full control of the supremacists and resolved to kind of return the organization to active violent acts in Macedonia, which caused a slew of problems for the Petko Karabelov government as it led the Ottomans to move troops to the Bulgarian-Macedonian border. Now, the Bulgarian government responded by banning rifle clubs that were sort of unofficial training grounds for Macedonian groups and generally forbidding Bulgarian army officers from associating with the supremacists. It was at this point that Gervanov of the MRO was arrested and released and then told to kind of speak with the supremacists as the Bulgarian government tried to sort of gain some control over the two organizations. Gervanov offered actually to basically hand the supremacists control of the MRO, but reality was that, yeah, the central committee of the MRO that he controlled barely had any contact with its grassroots members. Again, the MRO was still in total chaos, so Gervanov's control was more on paper. Now, partly as a result of this situation, uh, an MRO member named Jan Sandansky at this moment was working on some projects to kidnap wealthy people and ransom them to raise money for the organization. He and his followers kidnapped an American Protestant missionary named Ellen Stone, triggering a major international incident. Her missionary organization soon sent 230 pounds of gold, which the kidnappers managed to obtain despite the Ottomans trying to stop them, meaning that despite the fact that the MRO was still kind of mired in chaos, it was pretty flush with cash. Meanwhile, the conservative Karavelov government gave amnesty to those arrested opposing the peasant tax before finally canceling the tax itself. But the financial hole this left forced them to take yet another foreign loan to try to kind of put the Bulgarian government finances into some decent shape. Then, former Prime Minister Stoilov himself died and his party was taken over by none other than Ivan Geshov, the man who had recently inherited Evlogi Gorgiev's fortune. As a result, Geshov became president of the National Assembly. But Geshov's term was short, as attempts by the Karavelov government to secure another loan brought such bad terms that both the government and Geshov resigned in protest. While Bulgaria had actually, ironically, the smallest amount of debt in the region, it was still a very substantial debt, as about a third of the national budget went towards the army, and yeah, armies are expensive. As a result of all of this, a liberal progressive party government took over under Stoyan Danev. And around this time, the agrarians met and decided that they would finally become a full political party, though there were still many inside the agrarian group and organization that opposed this, and so many left over this decision. Now this brings us to 1902, when a disaffected former teacher assassinated the young minister of public of education, marking one of a what would kind of become a series of these kinds of assassinations, often by disaffected former bureaucrats. Again, you know, the, the system now is that when a party changes, basically everyone in government loses their jobs. So you're generating a lot of disaffected former bureaucrats. Soon after this, another scandal rocked Bulgaria when it turned out a small group had created hundreds of thousands of level worth of fake stamps leading to their arrest. But 
Despite all these scandals and the assassinations, the ruling progressive liberal party actually improved on their performance in the 1902 elections, meaning Danov stayed on as prime minister. Being pro-Russian, Danov made a state visit to St. Petersburg where he signed a secret military protocol where Bulgaria and Russia agreed to help each other in the case of war with either Romania or Austria-Hungary. But Russia remained firmly committed to the status quo in the Balkans, and by this point was even backing Serbia in its attempts to expand its influence, leading to the Bulgarian National Assembly to refuse to ratify the agreement. As a result, Bulgaria remained diplomatically isolated. But the reality was that a new uprising in Macedonia seemed more imminent than ever, as despite the chaos in its leadership, the supremacists were operating more chetty than ever before. The MRO, for its part, was trying to open itself up to non-Bulgarians and kind of rebrand itself as less of a, you know, solely Bulgarian organization, as I kind of noted before. Soon, the supremacist leader, General Tsonchev, escaped from a Bulgarian prison and was back in control of the organization and arguing that now was the time to lead an uprising, leading another group of the supremacists to withdraw from the organization in protest. Now, at this moment, a Bulgarian army officer was working with the supremacists and escaped into Macedonia in order to evade arrest. There, he just went ahead and gathered a large cheta and asked for support from the MRO, though they declined. Regardless of his lack of support or authorization from the supremacists, he just, on his own, began planning an uprising. Now, the MRO was furious about this because they felt it a supremacist-led uprising at this moment would severely undermine their own preparations for an uprising. As a result, some MRO bands began to actually actively fight supremacist bands in order to prevent them from beginning the uprising. Despite all this, though, the supremacists announced an uprising in Sofia with grand pronouncements. But the early fighting was sporadic and mostly along the Strumo River in what's now Pirin, Macedonia. Now, there was some limited success, but within a few weeks it was defeated and, as usual, it was local Bulgarians who paid the highest price as defeated Cheti retreated back into Bulgaria. Ottoman irregulars burned dozens of villages to the ground and the Ottomans blamed Bulgaria for the new uprising, while France and the UK simply called on the Ottomans to make reforms. A few minor reforms were soon announced, but again, nothing too substantial. On the other hand, Bulgaria responded by banning all Macedonian organizations and embarking on a new wave of arrests. All this put the Bulgarian government and Ferdinand in a tough position as they entered 1903. Geopolitical realities were forcing them to suppress the Macedonian organizations who, for their part, had lots of fighters, weapons, money, and support amongst the Bulgarian population. In essence, the Bulgarian people were pro-Russian and wanted Macedonia, even though these two things were essentially contradictory in terms of geopolitics. In this environment, the MRO felt backed into a corner. The Bulgarian government had banned it, the supremacists had created chaos in Macedonia with their failed uprising, and the Greeks were working with the Ottomans to suppress them. Under all that pressure, they began to feel that they had to launch their own uprising or risk destruction. This caused a deep rift in the organization, but it decided to prepare for the uprising anyways. 
Now, at this moment, the Bulgarian politician Petko Karvelov died, marking yet another step in Bulgaria's transition away from the generation that had led it through those early years after the 1878-1879 war. Otherwise, early 1903 saw an anarcho-nationalist group who wanted freedom for Macedonia and Thrace, called the Boatmen of Thessaloniki, begin a series of bombings throughout Ottoman Europe. Most of the early attempts in bombings and kidnappings and such failed, but they eventually managed to blow up a French ship in the Thessaloniki harbor, as well as a bank and a train. As a result, the foreign quarter of the city suffered yet more explosions and the whole city descended into chaos as mobs of local Muslims began lynching Slavs. Hundreds were arrested and killed. While the aim was to raise awareness about the plight of Bulgarians in Macedonia, this mostly resulted in the Bulgarian community of Thessaloniki being devastated and the great powers sending some warships. The rest of Europe now saw the Balkans as a bloody, brutal place even more than they did before. Then, to make matters worse, the prominent MRO leader Gotze Delchev was ambushed and killed, marking the death of yet another young, promising Bulgarian leader. But the MRO continued preparing for its uprising regardless. Meanwhile, after the boatman bombings, Ferdinand was even more frustrated with the Danas government's inability to keep things calm, and so he was forced out. The former party of Stefan Stambolov, the People's Liberals, then returned to power for the first time since his assassination. They arrived at a tough situation. War with the Ottomans seemed a very real possibility, and the army was mobilized. Just then, the king and queen of Serbia were brutally assassinated, bringing the Karadjordjevic dynasty back to power there and isolating Serbia diplomatically. But this news had hardly sunk in when, in late July, the MRO uprising in Macedonia finally began as beacons were lit, bridges blown, telegraph lines cut, weapons unburied, and roads blocked throughout Macedonia. The MRO announced to foreign consulates that the uprising was essentially there to force reforms. Essentially, they planned to fight for as long as possible in the hope that the great powers who were so in favor of the status quo would sort of change their minds. But despite all the warnings, the Ottomans were actually caught off guard by this uprising and initially struggled to contain it. However, in less than two weeks, the tide began to turn in favor of the Ottomans. While some fighting dragged on for more than three months, within about the first month, most of the fighting was already over. No foreign intervention occurred. Not even Bulgaria itself could intervene out of fear of war with the Ottomans. Worse yet, most of the European press sided with the Ottomans. Though pressure for reform did increase somewhat, and the Ottomans did once again agree to some mild reforms. Overall, though, at great cost, very little was gained by the Inlinden uprising, as was the case with the more recent Gornad-Jemaya uprising. So, now, both the MRO and the supremacists had been devastated by failed uprisings, and, as usual, the people of Macedonia paid the highest price. The MRO was now split into a left wing that wanted to form a Balkan federation based on socialistic principles, in which all ethnicities and religions would be equal, and a right wing that was more pro-Bulgarian, and this wing was joined by many former supremacist members. Otherwise, as a result of this uprising, Yet more refugees poured into Bulgaria, burdening the society and further reshaping it as many charitable societies popped up to help and sort of 
you know, more of these Macedonian refugees and their children gradually entered the Bulgarian military and the Bulgarian government and became prominent. Now, the failure of that uprising also created a new opening for Greece and Serbia to increase their influence in Macedonia. Lastly, though, the uprising marked yet another blow against Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who looked completely powerless to stop such events. Otherwise, while the uprising had been ongoing, Bulgarian elections saw the ruling People's Liberal Party win big. The Ferdinand still installed his ally, General Racho Petrov, as prime minister instead of a member of that party. Again, showing that the, you know, the prince sort of did what he liked despite elections. Soon afterwards, even though he was no longer in charge of the National Assembly, Ivan Geshov's house was visited by two armed men who extorted him for money, showing how extortion both by actual Macedonian groups and, like in this case, men who just claimed to be part of those groups in order to justify their robberies was becoming more and more common. Overall, Geshov by this point was lamenting how Bulgarian politics were marked by a basically a lack of tolerance, a lack of decorum, and a lack of genuine debate. Instead, the ruling majorities spent their time passing laws mostly aimed at protecting themselves and Ferdinand. It was now 1904, though, and the Russo-Japanese War broke out, leading to a humiliating defeat for Russia, which weakened and distracted the country from the Balkans for a time. In the absence of Russian attention, Bulgaria grew closer to Serbia, signing agreements as that country found itself in an economic conflict with Austria-Hungary and was more desperate to make friends in the neighborhood. Despite that cooperation, though, Serbia and Greece were still both increasing armed activity in Macedonia to take advantage of the vacuum left after the failure of the Alinden uprising. And that's where I'll finish with the first of these two wrap-up episodes. In the nine years from 1895 until 1904, Bulgaria struggled to find consistent allies in a world where everyone seemed to want the status quo in the Balkans. This was made more difficult by all the Macedonian revolutionary groups conducting uprisings and bombings, leading to waves of refugees that strained Bulgaria. At the same time, Ferdinand further solidified his control of Bulgarian politics, becoming the one who really decided who ran things in Sofia. Lastly, Bulgaria struggled financially, taking enormous loans and raising taxes to pay for massive military spending, leading to mass peasant unrest. Now next time, we'll finish the recap episodes we're covering kind of 1904 to 1912 before we return to the narrative of the Balkan Wars. So, you won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out more information of this and all episodes at bghistorypodcast.com.